Okay, let's get started. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, for sending Jesus. Thank you for regenerating us, giving us your Holy Spirit. And as we look at church history, we don't want to just criticize and throw people under the bus. We want to change. We want to look at what has happened, and we want to change, and we want to be confronted, and we want to see you Uh, work through your church, work through this local church body, and then the church universal to see change come. So Lord, would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite authors and theologians is J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer said that we should think of theologians as the church's sewage specialists. Their role is to detect and eliminate intellectual pollution and to ensure so far as a man can that God's life-giving truth flows pure and unpoisoned into Christian hearts. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at heresy. You've probably heard this word before. And we're going to look at orthodoxy. And again, we're building and laying a foundation for where we are headed as we get in this time machine and go back into church history. So we're going to look at, tonight we're going to look at the first heresy that popped up in the early church and what the early church did about it. So we're going to spend some time with some sewage specialists, as Packer said, which is just what you wanted to do on a Sunday evening, right? But why in the world do we want to look at heretics? What can we learn from them? Well, for starters, they help us to distinguish between what is taught in Scripture by the apostles and prophets and what is false. And so heretics can warn us. We've talked about this before. Heretics can warn us that you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. They remind us that even well-meaning people can be deceived. Even well-meaning people who know their Bibles forwards and backwards can teach error. But first, let's define a few terms. What is Orthodoxy. What do, we, what do we mean when we talk about orthodox Christian belief? Orthodoxy literally means right teaching. It comes from uh, the Greek word ortho, which means right or straight, and the Greek word doxa, which means teaching. So orthodoxy is right teaching. It's straight teaching. But... Every group may claim that they are orthodox. Every group may claim that they are right, right? So that begs the question, how do you determine who is right, who is teaching truth, when every group thinks that they're right? How do you determine it? Is it the majority? Is that how you determine who is teaching orthodoxy, orthodox Christian belief? Is it the majority of people? Or is it those with the most power and those with the most influence? Is that how you determine what is orthodox? How do you determine who is right when every single group thinks that they are right? Well, as we make our way through church history, we will see that those who were correct in their theology, those who were correct in their doctrine, those who were straight in their teaching, were not always in the majority. They were not always those who had more backing in the church. They were not always those who had the most influence. For instance, during the Arian controversy in 381 AD, which we'll talk about uh, in several weeks from now, most of the pastors of the day sided with the heretic named Arius. Most of the pastors and churches sided with Arius. And the orthodox, the conservative pastors, were few in number, and some of them were even persecuted by the state. So we'll spend more time with Arius later, but Arius believed that Jesus was created by God. Arius was a very popular pastor. Everybody loved Arius. They loved his sermons, but Arius believed that Jesus was created by God. And Arius popularized this catchy phrase that started going around on Facebook and eventually made its way into all the worship songs. And the catchy phrase that he popularized was this. There was a time when Christ was not. 
Arius believed there was a time when Jesus did not exist, that he didn't exist in eternity past. Arius believed that Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father. And so Arius taught that Jesus was the very first created being. And this false teaching, which we're going to look at later, spread like wildfire throughout Christendom. Pastors and churches were lapping this teaching up like thirsty dogs. And so they started writing catchy songs with that phrase, like there was a time when Christ was not. But a small core group of pastors stood their ground and insisted that what Arius was teaching was heresy because it went against Scripture, because it went against God's Word. But it almost split the church in half as it spread through the empire. And so the unity of the church was at stake. And this small number of Orthodox pastors and bishops held their ground and eventually won the day. And this theological discussion eventually caught... Emperor Constantine's attention, and so he called for the Council of Nicaea in 325 to solve the issue. And at this council, Arianism was condemned as heresy. So a few men by the names of Alexander, we'll look at him later, and Athanasius were those who led the charge against Arius. Arius had been spreading his popularity through books and conferences, and he was eventually denounced. But the point in all this is that orthodoxy and heresy cannot be measured by the number of people who support it because in Arius' day, the majority of the church fell for this heretical teaching hook, line, and sinker. So understand this. Just because it's popular and just because it sells books and just because every church in the world sings the latest song It does not mean that it is right. It does not mean that it is straight. It does not mean that it is orthodox. So in this class, we're going to refer to right belief as orthodox. Orthodoxy is the teaching that best follows the Bible and best summarizes what it teaches. Orthodoxy is not afraid to ask questions. Orthodoxy is not afraid to wrestle with mystery. But what we are calling orthodoxy is what best accounts for the paradoxes and the mysteries that we see in the Bible. And this is usually where heretics go wrong. They don't handle the paradoxes and the mysteries of the Bible very well. Things like the Trinity, like Arius messed up. Things like the deity and humanity of Christ. All right, the second term that we want to define is heresy. What is a heretic? Heresy literally means choice. It comes from uh, the Greek word heresis. It means choice. A heretic is someone who has made a choice to deviate from straight or right teaching. Um, A heretic is someone who has compromised a core doctrine or an essential doctrine. But let's keep this in mind as we go along because Christians are notorious for calling people heretics that they don't agree with, aren't they? Right? We do this all the time. We don't like someone. We don't like their interpretation of the Bible. They're a heretic. We just kind of throw that word around so easily, don't we? I've been called a heretic by people who used to attend this church. And in one case, it was over the end times, over eschatology. Because I did not believe what they believed about the end times, they called me a heretic and left. All because I was not a dispensationalist like them. Talked about last week, dispensationalism is that uh, end time belief, one of the four main end times beliefs that was popularized by the Left Behind books. I earned a, a Master's of Theology, a THM, from Dallas Theological Seminary, the mecca of dispensationalism. I was not convinced after studying there. After four years and 120 credit hours, I was not convinced of dispensationalism. But DTS let me graduate, and they didn't call me a heretic. I even had to check off a list when I graduated and say, I'm not dispensational. And they still conferred a degree upon me and didn't call me a heretic. But this family that left thought I was. So Christians are notorious for calling each other heretics. And when they do it in a local church, they usually leave in a huff. What these people often fail to see is that there are core doctrines that you must believe to be a Christian. 
But there are a lot of gray areas, aren't there? A lot of issues that we can disagree on, but we should never call someone a heretic over a non-essential doctrine. There are two common misunderstandings with heretics, and one is that heretics must not read the Bible. But that's not true. It's not that heretics aren't reading the Bible. They read the Bible. Some of them know the Bible forwards and backwards. They just make a choice to deviate from classic Christian doctrine in favor of their own ideas. The second misunderstanding about heretics is that heretics ask too many questions of the text. Heretics are not at fault for asking questions. Heretics go wrong because the answers to the questions that they're asking... Are wrong, and so they leave orthodox doctrine behind, and thus they get designated heretics. So, listen, when you read your Bible, ask questions. Ask all kinds of questions. Just stay within the parameters of the Bible, Revelation, that we looked at several weeks ago. Stay within the parameter of the creeds and the councils, doctrine and theology that we find throughout church history. But ask questions. So when we speak about these things, we must keep in mind that there are four categories to doing theology, four layers to discussing theology. There are essential and there are peripheral areas. So we can have these uh, concentric circles that we want to look at when we're doing theology, when we're talking about theology. We move out from what is essential out to the peripheral, what's on the edge. And in the center, we have, I'm not going to write it out because that circle is not big enough. In the center, we have absolutes. Absolutes define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. So what might be an absolute that is essential to the Christian faith that you must believe in order to be a Christian? Anybody? What's an absolute? The virgin birth. The virgin birth. Christ died for our sin. Christ died for our sins. Raised from the dead. dead. Yeah. These are some of the core beliefs, the absolutes that we have to believe. Then we move to convictions. The next little concentric circle there. We move to convictions. They're not core beliefs, but they have a significance on the health and effectiveness of a church. So what might a conviction be that someone might hold to in a particular church? I'll get it started. Maybe it's uh, paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Can you baptize babies or do you have to wait until they get older and have a profession of faith? That's another uh, um, conviction. Any other convictions that might have? It's not, it's not a core thing. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, like the church, what the church is like, the structure. Do you have elders? Do you not? Do you have deacons? Do you have deaconesses? Uh, If you're a reformed church or not, ministry philosophy, a gospel center, that would be a conviction. Okay, then we move on to the next circle. We move on to opinions. These are less clear issues that generally are not worth dividing over. You might decide not to go to a church because you have a conviction that you want to be a part of a reformed church, but what about an opinion? These are less clear issues. What might be an opinion that Christians should not divide over? Foot washing at communion time. Foot washing at communion time. Yeah. Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. And some of these you might move around depending on who you are. Some people may say, hey, speaking in tongues is a conviction or it might be opinion. Some people may say, my conviction is that there better be foot washings at every single Lord's Supper. That might be, they kind of move a little. The absolute has to stay the same, right? So these are opinions. We might, uh, the view of the Lord's Supper. Calvin and Luther had different views of the Lord's Supper But if they lived in the same city at the same time, on the same block, they would have attended the same church, I believe, and just said, hey, brother, I have a different conviction than you do about the Lord's Supper. But I think they would have worshipped together. I don't think they would have divided. And then finally, we move on to questions. Questions are currently unsettled issues. And so what might be some questions that Christians wrestle with that we should not divide over? What, what might be the number one thing that's really at the bottom here that churches often divide over? Worship songs. Worship songs, music, right? I mean, this is the thing, right? For some people, music style kind of gets moved to the center, doesn't it? 
style, preference. So these are just questions that we have, that we wrestle with, but we certainly don't want to divide over these things. So we will see these things as we study church history. We will see that the church does divide and contend for the absolutes, the center, for orthodox teachings. We'll see that we must stay within the Bible and what has been passed down to us throughout church history. But as we saw last week, there are various interpretations to various passages. There's freedom to hold interpretations that are within orthodox belief. So what are some areas that we can disagree on? We talked a few about a few of these. What are some areas that are within orthodox teaching, but there are various opinions? We, what about end times? We can, we can disagree about that, right? I think, I'm trying to think, I think James and Greg and I each have a differing uh, end time position. Yeah, so your pastors don't agree about the end times, okay? The Lord's Supper may be different. Baptism. Do you, what's your thoughts on election? Uh, these are things that uh, are within Orthodox Christian belief that we can disagree on and still be Christian. But that begs the question, what are the core essentials you have to believe to be a Christian? We mentioned a few. The virgin birth, the death of Christ. Here's the seven that you must, and I'm just throwing these out there. Here's the seven that you must adhere to to be a student at Dallas Theological Seminary where I went. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture, the Trinity, Christ's full deity and humanity, the spiritual lostness of the human race, Christ's substitutionary atonement and bodily resurrection, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and the physical return of Christ. So those are the seven that you have to adhere to to be a student at Dallas Seminary. There are core essentials that we have to believe. I mean, to be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're going to be looking at these two terms as we go through our churches, heresy and orthodoxy. When we read the New Testament, we see that there is clear evidence over concern for false doctrine. So though the word heresy is not used in Scripture, we see this emphasis on the concern over false teaching. There are, we won't read the passages because we don't have time, but 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach certain doctrines. 1 Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. And all these notes will be online if you don't catch them. Matthew 24, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. Galatians 1, Paul says, if somebody preaches a gospel that is contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so what Packer said is true, not only of theologians throughout church history, but also of those who wrote scripture and those who appeared on the pages of scripture. He said, think of theologians as the church's sewage specialist." Their role is to detect and eliminate intellectual pollution and to ensure, so far as a man can, that God's life-giving truth flows pure and unpoisoned into Christian hearts. So, the first heresy to pop up, the first sewage to be dealt with in the church was uh, by a group known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. These are the people that Paul is addressing in, in the book of Galatians. Who were the Judaizers? They are a group of Jewish people who, who believed that Gentile Christians had to be circumcised and adhere to the Mosaic law if they wanted to be saved. So to them, to be a Christian, you had to be circumcised and you had to adhere to the Mosaic law. So as the gospel spread from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and non-Jews... Gentiles were trusting in Jesus. This made the Judaizers upset. And we read three major incidents with the Judaizers in the New Testament where we can glean what they believe. There's Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, and Galatians chapter 2. But before we dig into the Judaizers, we need to set the cultural stage for what the relationship was between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They were the Hatfields and the McCoys. They were the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. They did not play nice with one another. 
Now, we know from reading the Old Testament, it has always been God's desire that the nations of the world come to worship Him, right? That the whole world would be blessed through our father Abraham. There are countless verses which highlight God's desire to see the nations, every nation, race, tribe, and tongue come to worship Him. But in the Old Testament, it was a come and see policy. It was come and see. Come and see what Yahweh's like. Come and hear His laws. Come and participate. So Gentiles in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, could come and worship Yahweh, but if they were men and boys, they had to be circumcised, and they had to adhere to the Mosaic Law. And we see several Gentiles do this in the Old Testament. What Gentiles in the Old Testament come from far away and come into the community of faith and then become Yahwists? They, they become believers. Any, any names off the top of your head? What about a certain prostitute who hid a couple of spies at Jericho? Rahab. What about Ruth? We talked about Ruth this morning. She's an outsider coming in. But the nation of Israel was not good with this come and see policy. And by the time they went into exile in Babylon and then returned, tensions between the Jews and Gentiles heated up and they eventually despised each other. And then after Rome came to power and began ruling over the Jews, you can imagine that it was not pretty. The Jews despised the Romans. That's why people freak out in the Gospels when Jesus eats with Gentiles, when he spends time with them. And that's why the Holy Spirit came upon the early church in Acts chapter 2. Why? Why did they need a fresh move of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Because they were not good with this come and see policy. They had the Spirit though, right? Did the saints in the Old Testament have the Holy Spirit? Were they indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Were the Old Testament saints saved? How, how were they saved? Through faith, right? Abraham. Abraham. By faith. Were they, were they regenerated? Were they Christians? Let me ask you, can you be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, dwelling you? No. no. In the Old Testament, though, didn't the Holy Spirit rest upon them? And then when Christ died and resurrected, then the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us. But they're still saved. Great, great question. We're going to talk about that. Exactly. I think we're going to kind of deconstruct what we talked about. Remember we talked about last week? We kind of inherit these interpretations, right? That's what I always was taught. You know, Holy Spirit came upon people. They did something. They left, right? But how are Christians say? What does David say in Psalm 51? Take not your what from me? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Okay. We, they all experience regeneration like us. They, it's by grace through faith they are saved. That's how any person has ever been saved. So I believe, now there's differing opinions on this, I believe the Old Testament saints, the disciples, any believer, even a Gentile believer who came in and trusted in Yahweh, before Pentecost they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not a new character being Introduced at Pentecost. And by the way, this is all foundation and background to get to the Judaizers. So track with me. The Holy Spirit is not a new character being introduced at Pentecost. The Spirit has always indwelt every believer prior to Pentecost. So what's the point of Pentecost? Why did the Spirit come upon them at Pentecost? Demonstrate the truth of the message. Demonstrate the truth of the message. But it stayed. But it's good because it did leave Saul. It does say that the Spirit left Saul. The Spirit left Saul, and there's debate on whether or not what that means. It could be it could mean uh, the Spirit came upon him to empower him for kingly ministry and left when he deviated. Okay, okay. there's debate about that. Yes, Carl said. What'd you say again? Uh, to validate the ministry. Yes, part of it. But in order to validate nations. What's that? To yeah. In order to validate the ministry, they got to get out of Jerusalem. They got to go out to uh, this Gentile world that they absolutely despised. I mean, think of the person that you can't stand the most. And I know you all have at least one of them. Okay. And what if God said to you, I want you to bake them cookies and take them to their house? Oh, gosh, Jesus. Anything but that. I'll serve in VBS, I promise. <laughs> it's kind of how the Jews 
viewed the Gentiles. Please don't send us to them. Pentecost was Jesus changing the game from a come and see policy to a go and tell policy. And so it's changing here from that. It's no longer you come to us and we'll tell you about Yahweh. Now it's we're going to go into the world and tell them that Yahweh has come in the person and work of his son Jesus. And that's why the Spirit came because these Jewish believers needed some fresh power from on high to motivate them to mission. They needed a new wave, a new outpouring of the Spirit to get them off of their couches and out on mission. I believe the Greek word for this is a kick in the pants. <laughs> in fact, Jesus even appeared before Pentecost and he breathed on them. Listen to what Jesus says in John 20 verses 19 to 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is after the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. See, they're afraid of the Jews even though they are Jews. Because they know these Jews don't like that, they've, that they're trusting in Jesus now as the Messiah. So Jesus said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, What? Receive the Holy Spirit. So they weren't receiving the Spirit for the first time at Pentecost because here in John 20, Jesus is saying, receive the Holy Spirit. They're not receiving the Spirit then either. I think Jesus is saying, receive the power that is going to come upon you at Pentecost that's going to enable you to go to mission. So did you make the connection there? Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is connected to mission for these Jews to get out and minister to Gentiles. Jesus is preparing them post-resurrection for their very first mission trip. He is sending them out, but not on their own. They will receive a new wave, a new outpouring of the Spirit, a fresh kick in the pants to go take the gospel to those dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking Gentiles that they can't stand. And so what happened at Pentecost? Well, you know the story, right? I won't read it to you, but Acts chapter 2, they're there, they're gathered in one place, they're, they're praying, and there came a sound like what? A mighty rushing wind. So you hear this, right? And filled the entire house where they're sitting. And then divided what? Tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there was a mighty rushing wind. Okay, remember wind. And then there was fire. All we're missing is earth, aren't we? <laughs> earth, wind, and fire. Where else in the scripture do we see the mighty rushing wind and fire? Where else, where in the Old Testament do we have this wind that blows, and there's fire present as well. This wind that blows, that's not blowing out the fire. The wilderness. The wilderness, yeah. Elijah. What's that? Elijah on the mountain. Possibly, yes. I'm, I'm thinking of a specific place here, though. In the Exodus, remember? Pharaoh's army pursues. Did everybody get this concentric circles? Because i got to make room for the Red Sea. So... We've got the Red Sea, right? We have Pharaoh's army, which is pursuing. They're actually on chariots too, but I don't have time to draw. Pursuing the Israelites who are here, right? Oh, Moses, you brought us out here and Pharaoh's going to kill us, right? That's what happens. And what happens there? there there's the, the cloud is there. The cloud, Moses tells us in Exodus that the cloud protects them from Pharaoh and his army. They can't see them, so they can't kill them. There's this thick cloud. They can't see it. actually says that they got to the edge here. The cloud led them here. Then the cloud went behind them. And then the Israelites crossed the Red Sea at night. Now, I know most children's Bibles depict it happening during the day, but it actually happened at night. The cloud by day actually turned into fire by night. 
So the cloud moves from here to here to protect them. And then when the sun went down, like it happened in the wilderness journeys, what happened in the wilderness journeys? Cloud by what? Day and fire by night. So when the sun goes down, the cloud, however it did it, becomes this fire by night. So now there's this gigantic wall of fire between the Israelites and Pharaoh and his army. And then Moses tells us that the wind blew all night over the Red Sea. So the wind blows. Uh, And then the Israelites crossed over. This happened during the morning watch we read about in Exodus 14. I'll read it in a moment. Between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So let me read it to you. Exodus 14 verses 19 through 25. It says, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without once coming near, uh, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. So the wind blows all night and then between 2 and 6 a.m. the Israelites cross over into new territory. So the fire comes between uh, Israel and Pharaoh to protect them. The strong east wind blows and the Israelites are crossing over. And the only light source is where? It's behind them, right? The way forward is what? Dark. They're crossing over. Moses says cross over. There's no street lights. The fire's back there. We can see the first few feet. You're telling us to cross over. It's dark. We can't see. What do you mean it's dry? It may be dry right here, but, you know, are you sure? And so the only light source they have is behind them. The way forward is dark. It's pitch black. They had to trust Yahweh that the ground was dry. They had to walk by faith, not by sight. Before Paul brought that up in the New Testament. And so do we. God often calls us, doesn't he, to do things for him. And we can't see what lies ahead. And we have to take these steps of faith like Moses and company did. So Ray Ortland, I quoted him this morning. But he says this. Here is the Christian life in just six words. Not knowing where, Hebrews 11.8, I know whom, 2 Timothy 1.12. Abraham didn't know where God was leading him, but he didn't need to know where. Like Paul, he knew whom he had believed. And so it is with us. We don't know where, but we know whom, and that's enough. If you always have to know where and what and when and how and so forth, all in advance, before you obey God, then you are not living by faith in God. Living by faith in God accepts ambiguity without getting nervous. Because God is the one in charge. Not knowing where, I know whom. That's Christianity. The disciples were told by Jesus to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And that's all the info that Jesus gave them. They had to accept ambiguity without getting nervous. And they had to wait 50 days for Pentecost. That's what's happening at Pentecost. The the Jewish early church was being empowered to cross over into new territory, Gentile territory, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire look back to the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. And so Pentecost was God's way of kicking the early church, these Jews, in the pants, sending them out on mission into dark, unknown territories, out of their comfort zones, to take the good news to those dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking Gentiles that they couldn't stand. So now think about this. As the Holy Spirit enabled them, These pious Jews suddenly spoke a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking Gentile language. They must have been looking at each other and wondered what in the heck was going on. 
they're Jews, and all of a sudden they're all speaking these Gentile languages, which they were familiar with and knew. And they're like, oh, Peter, <laughs> you know. All of, any questions on that? Because that's all background information for us to see what's happening with the Judaizers in the, the New Testament and then all the way into, we're actually going to see the Judaizers all the way into the second century. It's going to take a while for their influence to kind of uh, drift and, and leave the pages of history. Any questions about the Exodus and how this ties into mission? You all believe my interpretation. Thank you. Uh, if you disagree, I'm okay with that. But I was kind of raised to say, hey, the Holy Spirit came upon them in the Old Testament to do a service. And then what? He left. Like he just couldn't hang around. He had other things to do. If that's true, isn't that what we're saying then in Acts chapter 2? Didn't the Holy Spirit come upon them to empower them for mission? The same thing is happening. You had believers in Yahweh who are looking forward to the Messiah to come, indwelt by the Holy Spirit... Every single one of them, but sometimes the Spirit came upon those believers to do what? To do certain things, like King Saul, to do certain things, and then the Spirit would leave. They still were indwelt by the Spirit, but they got a fresh new wave or power for some ministry. Then you get into Acts chapter 2, same thing, same Jewish believers filled with the Holy Spirit, but what? The Holy Spirit comes upon them to what? Empower them into mission. Carl. Do you feel there is a difference between being indwelt with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit? Because I mean, when Stephen, you know, is being stoned, it says he was filled with the Spirit. Yeah. And he already had the Spirit. Then it makes the... I think they're different in that you have the Spirit, but Paul also says be filled with the Holy right. Spirit. There's something about... Uh, well, that was my point, is that you talk about the Old Testament people suddenly being empowered to do things. Well, yeah. I mean, it seems it happens in the New Testament, too, when you're filled with the Spirit and you can do that you know, do things. Yeah. The spirit moves you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say the same thing is that that's part of the feeling is that is that he comes in and empowers us, that they would have experienced that too. But I don't like talking about being filled with the spirit because I'm not a charismatic and that just makes me nervous. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I agree with Paul. It's there. Be filled with the spirit. There's something you, I, it's more, you can tell when you're being filled with the spirit and serving someone, right? You can tell. And without it being, a, it's got to be something weird and uh, freaky going on. Saw another hand, Russ. Yeah, how would you look at the uh, uh, with Samson? It says that the spirit left him. Uh, do you think at that point that he was never a believer, or he was? Or I, I'm I'm willing to say he was a believer the whole time, and that the spirit left him in the sense that he was no longer empowering him for that ministry. And then, obviously, I think the Spirit comes back later on. So, I don't think anyone's losing the Holy Spirit. I think everyone is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. But I think the Spirit is coming upon people and empowering them and leaving for the reasons that the text state or doesn't state. Uh, Don, I think I saw a hand. Or... Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay, so this is all background and foundation. For, to understand what's happening with the Judaizers. Now you can see why tensions were high between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's why this group of Judaizers confronts Peter in Acts chapter 11. Turn to Acts chapter 11. So you already saw that, that Peter and the disciples were afraid of the Jews. After they said, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. After his resurrection. So they're already afraid of the Jews. But now look what happens when these uh, Judaizers show up in Acts chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea. Heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party. That's the Judaizers. The circumcision party criticized him saying. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. See, they still have issues with this. They're still struggling. We don't like these Gentile people. What in the world are you doing, Peter, going and eating with them? Well, it's because I've left the come and see policy to the go and tell policy. Right? Now, flip over. There's more. We don't have time to get into all of this. But um, Peter tells his story about uh, seeing the, uh, the, the sheep come down from heaven. But let's go to Acts chapter 15. 
We'll see the Judaizers again. And we're going to see uh, really the essence of their theology. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How are sinners saved? Through circumcision? Through adhering to the Mosaic law? No. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ as the Spirit regenerates us. We also see this in Galatians 2. Flip over there. I wish we had more time, but there's uh, child care, and I want to make sure uh, we get out on time. Galatians chapter 2. You know the famous story. Peter is eating with Gentile believers. Then some people show up and he's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know these people, right? Let's read it. Galatians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul talking. Because he stood condemned. For before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jesus? Not Jesus, Jews, like the Jews. We want you to tell people to live like Jesus. The Judaizers, for them, circumcision was a prerequisite for salvation. Peter temporarily acted like a Judaizer when he refused to eat with the Gentile believers. In fact, that's what Paul calls him in verse 14. It says this in Greek. How can you force the Gentiles to Judaize? When he says to live like Jews, he says, how can you force the Gentiles to Judaize? So the Judaizers then were considered heretics because they taught things that Paul says here were not in step with the truth of the gospel, such as salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What did the Judaizers say in Acts chapter 15? In order to be saved, you have to what? Be circumcised. You have to adhere to the Mosaic law. That's how you're saved. Judaizers also uh, failed to insist that Jews and Gentiles are on equal ground in Christ, right? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? The dividing wall of what? You remember? Dividing wall of hostility. Does that give you some? Turn to Ephesians 2. The dividing wall of hostility. That gives you an insight into the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. There was hostility. And he talks about Jesus bringing this down. Okay, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul says that he's torn down this wall of hostility and he's now created what? One new man. One new man. One people. Jews and Gentiles together. So the Judaizers were saying, the Jews are special. And if you want to be saved, you have to become like us. And Paul is saying that Jesus has torn down that wall of hostility. There's one new man. One people of God who are being built together. Right? Right? 
I just showed you my eschatological position. I just showed you my end time position right there and you didn't catch it. But I believe there's one people of God, Paul says, who are being built together. And this dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And so the Judaizers did not believe that Jews and Gentiles were on equal ground in Christ. They still felt the Jews are special and they have a step up. They also failed to see that the law was meant to drive us to Christ and not earn our favor. Paul says that in Galatians 3.24. Let me read it to you. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was meant to show us our sin so that we would see our need of a Savior. The law was not given so that we can say, we can do this. We can be saved if we're circumcised and we keep the law. So the Jews, not only did they miss out on the come and see policy, the Judaizers were also missing out on that. You can't earn this thing. Being circumcised and adhering to the Mosaic law will not save you. Right? They were meant to say, oh my goodness, we can't keep all these commandments. We need a Savior. So, let's talk about... Uh, any, any questions so far? Any questions? Let's talk about the contemporary significance of the Judaizers. We're going to see them. They're going to remain a problem well into the second century because the early church is still going to struggle with what do we do with the Old Testament? That's the scriptures that they had. What do we do with, what do we do with all these weird laws? It says you can't cut the sides of your hair. You've got to keep them long and curly. Why can't you wear clothing made of two different types of fabric? What are we going to do with all these different kinds of laws now that we're Christians? So the early church in the first and into the second century are continuing to wrestle with what does it mean to be a Christian? And yet we have this text, the Old Testament, that's full of all this Jewishness. So they're going to struggle with it. So what is the contemporary significance of the Judaizers? The Judaizers, at their core, denied justification by faith. Phil Reichen says, he's a pastor and commentator, he says, The good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only gospel there is. Anyone who says anything different, Paul doesn't care, deserves to go to hell. There is no other gospel. There has never been any other gospel. And there will never be any other gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1 uh, verse 8 and 9 I believe. He says let him be accursed. Anathema. Then he'd be sent to hell. If somebody comes Galatians and preaches another gospel to you. And says you are not justified by faith. That person deserves to go to hell. Because they're teaching a contrary gospel. Those are pretty strong words right? And there must be true because they're in God's word. This is why the Judaizers deserve to be labeled heretics. Now, Christians can still be influenced by Judaizers just like Peter in Galatians 2. Some Christians try to become Jewish, right? You ever met a Christian that wants to kind of become like a Jew and they want to kind of go back and take all of those Mosaic laws and, and do them and try to adhere to the food and clothing laws? And like, I can't eat shrimp anymore. I love shrimp, but now I'm trying to come under this law. That's still it's an Seventh influence. Seventh-day Adventists want to hold to Saturday as the Sabbath. Right? We still see this. The Judaizers, though not as predominant in the first and second centuries, the, the spirit, if you will, of them is still alive and well. Because we see it even with how they viewed the races. They viewed the Jews as special people, as God's special chosen people. Leg up on the rest of those dirty, stinking, rotten, filthy Gentiles. And the Jews are special. But who's the father of the Jews? Where did Abraham come from? Israel? Abraham was a pagan, wasn't he? It's not that there's anything specific about his blood. Abraham was a pagan, right? He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't born a Jew. He came from far away, Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Judaizers, we still see it today when there's any kind of special emphasis placed on any race that's special, any particular ethnicity. You can see this uh, 
gosh, believe it or not, racism is still a thing. Gosh, how have we not figured this out yet? Certainly thought the civil rights movement in the 60s would have solved this problem, but it hasn't solved this problem because we're sinners. There are still churches that still preach a white gospel, white supremacy, sickening. It's just kind of the spirit of Judaizers still alive and well. 30 years ago, we were told uh, by my church that we couldn't get married by some people because I was Mexican and was white. That was a sin. That's 30 years ago. Well, 36 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And, no, and, it's, and there are still people that say that today. No. Still people who claim to be no. Christians who still... That's what I love about grace. Man, we are changing. We're being very multicultural, very multi-ethnic. I love it. It's the way God's family should be. Uh, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, and we're just this one beautiful mess of different ethnicities and cultures coming together. And we want people to look at us and say, the only thing that explains this is the gospel. How do they all get along when every culture and ethnicity is fighting out there in the world? How do these Christians get along? It must be the gospel of Jesus. Here's another way that we still see Judaizers today. In your Christianity, do you ever feel like you get on the performance treadmill where you try to earn God's favor? Anybody still feel like, man, I didn't read my Bible and pray today. He must be let down. We still see the influence of the Judaizers still. They denied justification by faith. It's by faith in Christ that we are absolutely forgiven, absolutely justified, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to keep it. That status of being in Christ, we cannot mess that up. We can mess up our lives, like we heard this in this morning's sermon, but we can't mess up our union with Christ. Justification by faith is at the heart of Christianity. John Calvin said, Justification is the principal hinge by which religion is supported and the sum of all piety. Whenever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. See, we can act like functional Judaizers when we think that somehow what we do affects our status with God. Another way that we might do this is when we live in the fear of man. People-pleasing. Who doesn't struggle with that? Who doesn't struggle with people-pleasing? Right? Or the fear of man. You get around someone, you're nervous, you want them to like you, things come out of your mouth. It's like, why did I see you leaving? Like, why did I say that? It just came out of my mouth. Oh gosh, I feel like an idiot. It's people-pleasing. It's, it's the fear of man. You know what Paul said in Galatians 1? This helped me so much about uh, 12 years ago. Man, I discovered this and it set me free. In Galatians 1.10, and I remember it was at Starbucks. It was probably longer than that then. I was working at Starbucks with my friend Rob. We were talking about this and he said, man, Galatians 1.10, brother. We went to seminary together. We were at seminary at the time. He said, Galatians 1.10, man, that's the fear of man that's gripped you. And he quoted it off the top of his head. He said, For I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That kind of opened the door for me to see, oh, I don't have to try to please people to live in fear of man. I've been accepted by God. So what are some other ways that we might be influenced by Judaizers? Do you have a witness maybe? Because they don't believe faith. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, possibly that they believe that too. Works. Yeah. Works-based righteousness. Yeah. Where do we, we see it with still the Roman Catholic Church, right? It's all about being good enough. Baptism is baptismal regeneration with the Church of Christ. That's what saves them. Yeah, we see it in um, in different ways. I'm going to pass out these handouts here. I've shared this in numerous sermons because it's been so helpful to me. I first read Jerry Bridges' book Transforming Grace in 1992, and it didn't quite stick until many, many years later. But I think this is really kind of. 
the essence. Like we're, you live as a functional Judaizer when some of these things are true. And I recommend his. I recommend any book by Jerry Bridges, Transforming Grace, Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love. If any of these resonate you, with you, it's a sign that you don't understand grace. It's a sign that you may have slipped into being a functional. Judaizer. Though you may not be saying that you have to be circumcised to be saved and have to adhere to the Mosaic law to be saved, in a way this is being a functional Judaizer when some of these things are true for you. I'm going to read them off and then we'll, we'll wrap up. These things uh, stress how your relationship, when you're a functional Judaizer, your relationship with God in your mind rides on what you are doing for God. And not what Jesus has already done for you. And so you can be a functional Judaizer when you shift from what has Christ done for me through his life, death, and resurrection. And you shift that to what am I supposed to be doing for him or what am I not doing for him. So here's what Jerry Bridges says. You don't understand grace if or you might be a functional Judaizer if if you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. You ever live with that? That sense of just, man... He's frowning at me. He's a grumpy dad. I'm always letting him down. He's like, ah. Or do you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you've just failed him? I don't know. Maybe you cuss the guy out in the roundabout. And then three minutes later, you need Jesus to help you with something. You feel like, how can I come to you in prayer when I just cuss that guy out in the roundabout? Or you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice. You ever do that? And I've been serving, working hard for you, Lord. Throw me a bone. I deserve it. Or you assume that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all of your credit of forgiveness. You ever feel like that? That thing you promised you would never do again. You did it again. Oops, I did it again. You feel more confident before God if you've been faithful with your quiet times, prayer, and witnessing. You ever get that? Like you're on a streak. Like you started in January and it's March and you're still doing three chapters a day. And you're still praying and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. I felt pretty confident because my standing before God is based on my Bible reading and my quiet time. Not on Christ's finished work. You can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes. You feel dirty. You think when God looks at you, he sees a dirty, no good, filthy sinner. And you don't understand grace. You might be a functional Judaizer. Or if you fear that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time. What about that one? Right? I got to read some scripture right before. I still do that. Oh my goodness, running late. I got to read some sort of scripture before I head out of the house. Or something bad's going to happen. That's like witchcraft, isn't it? (laughs) I'm being a functional Judaizer in that moment that if I don't read scripture today, something terrible is going to happen to me. I'm reading scripture not to know Jesus. I'm reading scripture to keep whatever bad is out there away. That's not Christianity, is it? The last one, you assume that you can do something to make Jesus love you more or less. You think if you are faithful with your quiet times, I'm special. Or you think, man, he must really hate me. He must love me less because I just can't measure it. If any of these things are true, and they're true for all of us at different places and times in our lives, we're just being functional Judaizers. Okay, So the Judaizers will still be around in the first and second century, but they've kind of been hung around through the years always, and they're still around. So... Just a reminder, no class June 30th, no class July 7th. We'll be back July 14th after the tri-tip dinner at 5 p.m. We'll come over here, and Lord willing, we're actually going to get into the second century. We're going to tiptoe and make our way into 100 A.D. and beyond, and Lord willing, we're going to look at at least Ignatius of Antioch and look at some of the things that he was still wrestling with and dealing with some 40 plus years after most of the New Testament was written and some 70 plus years after Jesus has resurrected and been ascended. We're going to see that it may not be a surprise to you and it might be. We're going to see that the church still has the same problems that the church has always had because there are sinners there. And anytime sinners show up, there's going to be a problem.
And so Ignatius is going to write letters to churches and help people on his way to being executed, believe it or not. We're going to see Ignatius is on a bus, if you will, making his way to Rome where he's going to be martyred. And on the way, his care and concern of the church is I'm going to help you guys out because they're about to kill me. So I hope you learn to love Ignatius. We'll see him, Lord willing, on July 14th. Let me close this. Father, thank you that it is by grace through faith in the finished work of your son Jesus alone that we are saved. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. We can never lose him. Thank you for that. It's just your goodness to us. Lord, help us not to be functional Judaizers. And Father, fill us with your spirit. Empower us to go out on mission, taking the good news to the central coast. We ask you to do all this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, see you guys.